Hello, welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joining the line later today by Jeff Gervitz. Now, this episode of the Physical Prep Podcast is sponsored by coronavirus, aka COVID-19, and the quarantine that is going on at Team Robertson Household. So, we have some guest hosts that would like to say hello today. Kendall? Hello. Cade? Mew, mew. Yes. So they are going to help me out with the intro. They are cute. They are sweet. And we are attempting to homeschool them for the next 20 plus days. So should be exciting times around the house. So I would ask what is new in your neck of the woods. Chances are there is a lot. This, uh, I mean, I don't even know what to say right now, my friend, like uncharted territory. I can't remember any time in my life I've seen this. I was talking with Bill today. He can't remember any time in his life he's seen anything like this. I'm tempted to text my my parents here soon and see what they've seen in their 70 plus years. But wow, I mean, we are just in uncharted waters. And so hopefully, if you are listening to this, you are happy, you are healthy, you are safe. Uh, Luckily for you, the content train for me will continue to roll, whether it's podcasts, uh, we dropped a new iFast podcast. Well, we haven't dropped it yet, but we recorded it today uh, at the gym. I'm going to shoot like a video every day just to keep the motivation up, to continue to help you grow and evolve because I am often reminded of the Chuck Pagano quote. So if you are unfamiliar with Chuck Pagano, he was the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts for three or four years, and he was notorious for saying, control the controllables, love or hate Chuck, which I don't think anybody hated Chuck. He just probably wasn't as successful as we would have liked here in Indianapolis. Um, But you got to love the quote because it forces you to take ownership of the things you can control. And this is something we talked about with our kiddos the other day. You know, Kendall was kind of bummed out that she couldn't, you know, go to school and see her teacher and see her friends. And, you know, so we had that discussion of, well, okay, but we can't control that. So what can we can control? We can control our mindset. We can control what we do with our free time. The thoughts that we put into our head, our actions, our emotions, these are things that we can control. So that's what I would ask of you as well. You know, we're all probably struggling with this in some way, shape or form. I mean, there's a lot of just ambiguity. There's a lot of unknowns out there. And, you know, for me as a business owner, multiple small businesses. In fact, you know, I don't know what it's going to entail. We're doing everything that we can at the gym right now to hopefully keep things as business as usual, albeit with a lot of caveats. You know, if you're sick, we're asking you obviously to stay at home. I mean, I would think that would be pretty implied across the board, but you know, if you're ever sick, stay home. If you are at the gym, make sure you're disinfecting, wiping things down. You're conscious of everybody else that's around you. I mean, look, can't really know what we're up against, at least not yet. So, you know, at the end of the day, I just hope that you are doing everything in your power to stay safe, stay healthy, keep your mindset in the right place. And just know that, look, all bad things, all bad times come to an end. So I'm going to use this time to double down on time with my kiddos. I mean, I got to hang out with them for a you know, the large bulk of my day to day, which is awesome. So I'm going to enjoy that. I'm going to continue to shoot videos, create content, because that's something that I can control. I'm going to educate myself. There's some things uh, that I've been wanting to circle back to with regards to my own con ed 
So I'm going to go back to that and kind of, you know, put some pieces of the puzzle back together. So, you know, every situation is what you make of it. Obviously, nobody wants to be stuck at home or quarantined or have their, you know, their daily routines broken. But at the end of the day, all bad times will pass. Uh, and, you know, we're all going to be stronger as a result of it. So I am rambling. So I'm going to shut it down here. We're going to do a quick break. And then I'm going to jump into this awesome new show with my guy, Jeff. This episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by Momentus. For many years, I simply disregarded the age-old advice of getting liquid protein in either during or after workouts. Part of this was due to the fact that most had so much crap in them, I didn't want to put them in my body, and others might have been high quality, but tasted absolutely disgusting. However, if you're looking for a protein that's not only high quality, but also tastes amazing, you need to check out Momentus. I've been using Momentus for several months now, and I can tell you it's hands down the best tasting protein I've ever had. But it's not just me. I have numerous elite level athletes who are very picky with their protein powders, and every one of them raves about how great Momentus protein shakes taste. And while the taste is amazing, the best part about Momentus is that they're incredibly transparent with what goes into their product. You never have to worry about a tainted or dirty supplement as all of their products are NSF and Informed Sports certified. If you'd like to try Momentus out for yourself, head over to livemomentous.com forward slash Robertson and use the code Robertson20 to save 20% off your first order. Or if you want to try before you buy, get a free three-pack sample sent to your house by using the Robertson sample code at checkout. Regardless of which option you choose, I guarantee once you try Momentous Protein Shakes, you'll never go back to anything else. Jeff Gurbitz is the founder of Bang Fitness in Toronto, which he opened in 2008. He traveled the world and tried every job, from translating Chinese to writing the back covers of Harlequin romance novels, before finally finding his calling. Now Jeff and his team build systems to help people integrate exercise into their lives in a meaningful and sustainable way. In this show, Jeff and I take a deep dive into training the general population. We talk about why we need to stop focusing on so-called transactional workouts, why much of our industry is focused on novelty versus nuance, the power of creating a shared vocabulary with our clients, and a state of the union with regards to movement that you don't want to miss. There's some great back and forth in this episode, and I think you'll really enjoy it. But enough for me. Let's do this. Jeff, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Super excited to catch up with you. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I am the founder. I adore you. Thank you. I'm the, I'm the founder of Bank Personal Training, which we've been rolling since 2008. I am a dad. I am a husband. I am a writer. I would describe myself as a fan of human potential. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I like it too. I, I, think, I think that I am in the world to help reduce some of the complexity and confusion around fitness and deeper health concepts. I think, you know, one of the things I really try to communicate is this stuff shouldn't feel like a grind. And even though it can't always be fun, it should always be meaningful. And and so, you know, we really help people find a path toward that kind of physical life. I love that. I love that. And what led you to the world of physical preparation? Like, how did you get started either lifting weights or working out? What was your pathway, so to speak? 
Okay. I was not an athletic kid. So I always like to sort of preface that. So I, you know, when I was maybe 16, I started realizing like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to do more with this, with this body. Like this is more (laughs) than just a thing to carry my brain around in. But I wasn't, I wasn't like, I'm not a super competitive guy. I wasn't motivated to, to join team sports or anything like that. So I found martial arts and, you know, I can't emphasize enough how, how bad I was. Like I rem- I remember the instructor legitimately looking surprised that I showed up for my second <laughs> lesson. <laughs> and for me, it was like learning another language. I couldn't just do a thing if they said, oh, you know, and there was a lot of chopping. You got to You got to You got to chop somebody in the neck. I couldn't just do that. I couldn't just replicate it. I would have to say to myself, OK, lift your hand up about 45 degrees it's going to be index finger up. Then you're going to rotate palm up. You're going to bring that across your center line. So it, it was sort of like in the early stages of learning a language, you're, you're kind of translating one word at a time. And that's, right. that's really how it felt for me. And it took a lot of time and a lot of practice to be able to get to the point where I could just physically express myself. And I never really thought about it at that time. And, and it was years and years that went by where I never in a million years would think I would be in the industry that I'm in. But then I realized the great value or the great asset that I bring is that I can I can translate. I can look at what athletic people do and sort of and help anyone reverse engineer that stuff. Hmm. So, you know, for me, um, I went on. I, I you know, I, I worked for years as a, as a freelance writer. I lived abroad. I did all kinds of things. And I moved to Toronto in 2002. And I was back in martial arts and I was thinking, you know, and I remember this really clearly. I was thinking about how impactful this has been for me. And all I really wanted at the time was was to find a path to doing this for as long as humanly possible. I want to be in my 60s and my 70s and move well and be strong and durable and mobile and be physically robust. And in researching that, you know, at the time it was it was a very different landscape. You know, we're probably going to get into this, but there was not a lot of information. So there was sort of the men's health stream. Yep. There was like popular fitness and there was athletic performance and there was not a lot to bridge the gap. So I went into athletic performance, started reading and researching. And I was just, I could, I didn't even know why, but I was just so compelled by this. I found it really interesting and, and, and was digging into the material to the point where people started to go, why don't you like, why are you doing this? Why are you working with people? So I started, I dipped my toes in the water as a personal trainer and then that started getting traction. And then, you know, long before I had the intention of maybe someday, six or seven years down the road, hey, maybe we'll open a facility up. And that just came a lot sooner than anticipated. I had an opportunity and I, I jumped on that. Initially, we were, I, I thought we were going to have a focus on working with, with combat athletes. And that's what we did for the first couple of years. But I really like working with the general population. I think that's where I really bring value. So that's... That's what we've been doing for over a decade now. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit about Bang. So you opened in 2008, mm-hmm. you know, you start, so that's where you started with like the MMA and you thought this was going to be my thing and just kind of transitioned to more gin pop from there. Yeah. So we always had fighters who, you know, generally don't have a much of a training budget. So it was never right. a business model. In fact, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and we, we know this, you know, and I've seen friends go through this with, with all kinds of sports where, you know, it really is. A lot of people will will say, yeah, I work with, you know, X population, athletic population, but we all have general population folks to kind of, that's where we can base a business around. But I found that that's where I really 
these are the people I love working with. And it's cool if we're, if we're shaving, you know, a hundredth of a second off your, your, you know, your 40 yard time, that's cool. But when we show someone how to find an enjoyment of movement, how to integrate this into their life, like to me, that that's life changing. And, and that's yes. a lot more profound. So that that's what really makes makes me happy. I love it. I love it. So let's start very simple here. Let's start with the gin pop. If you had to mm-hmm. summarize your philosophy or approach to training them, what would it be? Okay. So I think there are a few basic concepts. Okay. And one is I'm not here to motivate people. I, I have an implicit trust in people's motivation. And that's a big defining feature of what we do. We're in a culture of people who feel like they need to be motivated. They say that, that they need to be motivated. That's probably the most common thing I hear when I talk to people. You know, but they're still struggling to make it happen. And they feel like it's a motivation issue or a discipline issue. And I think it's it has a lot more to do with a messed up idea of what exercise is supposed to look like and feel like. And there's this huge emphasis on t- intensity and what I would call transactional exercise in North America. And that means, you know, where we only care about what we get from a workout. How many calories did I burn? How much weight did I have on the bar? And there's no love of, of process. Mm, um, yeah. You know, and so of course you need to be motivated. You have a miserable idea. You have this idea of fitness that sounds like a, like a forced march to me. <laughs> but I don't think anybody needs to be cajoled into wanting to have more energy or to move more fluently or feel more at home in their own body. Nobody needs to be motivated to, to keep up with their kids or want to keep up with their kids. So for me, the real problem is what friction points exist in someone's life. What negatively impacts motivation? What sucks energy out of out of this. And, and so for us, we're all about eliminating those friction points, you know? So rather than trying to yell someone into fitness, I'm asking the question of how do we stoke the fires of intrinsic motivation? Because that's the stuff that people are going to keep well after our relationship for Mm -hmm. however long it is. And we've been working with people, you know, we've had folks that are working with us for 10 years plus, but we're not going to work with them forever. Right. That being said, I want to make sure that we have an impact that that goes well beyond the time we spend together. Another thing that that's really important to me is we want to elevate your body awareness and your course correction strategies. And by that, I mean that if you're in a position that does not feel wonderful, first of all, do you notice that? Like if your mechanics are off, are you aware of that? And if you are aware of that, do you have nuanced course correction strategies? Can you make the, the subtle adjustments to make those mechanics work. You know, we like to talk about movement variability and and that's, I guess we can follow it under that, but it's really about those little differences. And I would say, you know, we're not training athletes. We're really not. And that's not a bad thing because for me, athletic training has to be a lot more rigid and we have to actually take more risks. We have to be more risk tolerant because, you know, somebody's, you know, million dollar contract could depend on that multi-million dollar contract. So, but with the general population, first of all, we can go in any direction we want. We have the freedom to explore whatever aspects of movement make their hearts sing, whatever makes people happy. And then if something doesn't feel right, guess what? We can just disengage. We can stop. We can do something else. We can play around. So we're not on a quadrennial cycle. We're on an 80 year cycle. Right. (laughs) Right. So we, we have a much longer timeline to think about. And so we want to be smarter about risk to reward. In the early days, we're, we just want to build core competencies. But as we go, we start to expand your, your basic toolkit. And basic toolkit for me is barbell work, kettlebell, 
body weight. And then as we grow, we get to explore other, you know, things like rotational implements. I love Indian clubs, as you know, and maces. And we want to find this nexus of what they like doing, you know, first and foremost. And then that's what they're going to get good at anyway. Right. And then we want to explore that stuff. So it's not a desperate race to get your body composition, get your, get your abs before your knees give out or your back gives out. <laughs> right. It's sometimes right. Like, like, that's how I, I feel people are treating this. You know, this is my last chance to get the body I want. And, and they're, they're, they're grinding into the, their last vestiges of, of meniscus, whatever's yes. left in their knees, you know, and, and really it's about finding ways to move that enhance your durability, enhance your skill, kind of help you give physical expression. And that can be radically different from person to person. And, you know, I, I would sort of add a, a bonus concept and that yeah. we're, we're not chasing, we're not chasing novelty here and we're chasing nuance. And, <laughs> you know, to me, it, it, you know, we're not trying to be Bondarchuk <laughs> in the sense like where we're just repeating the same workout over and over again, as long as we're, we're squeezing juice out of that. Like some people are cool with that and, and I'm into that. But more than anything, we're just trying to find a process that really works for people and has, has a deeper meaning. I love it. So this may seem simple, but I'd love to know what's your thought process when writing a program for a gen pop client? Are there any major boxes that you're looking to check or that you need to check to feel like, okay, I'm going to really deliver a great training effect to this person? Yeah. Okay. So first and foremost, I'm a movement guy. Mm -hmm. And I just mean that like we always want to explore motor control and awareness before anything else. And, and so I don't like, I don't want to make it sound like we're just doing correct events, exercises and everything soft. When we help people groove a good motor pattern, pick whatever you like, pick a squat. We're not dogmatic about how we get it done. We just want to get it done mm-hmm. well. And a lot of times we have to just make that as accessible and intuitive as possible. I think there are some fundamental competencies that we want to see in any human and and these have to come first. So that might be from controlling pelvic position to being able to activate your abs or your lats at will to, to stabilize proximally, like whatever you think is important, whatever, you know, it could be, uh, we have, this is your, your minimum viable range of motion for shoulder flexion, you know, whatever it is, we want people to be able to produce this stuff on demand and in time from any position anywhere. But first we have to reduce complexity and make this stuff as accessible as it needs to be. So that's our, that's our first priority. You have to, you have to give people not just the physical tools, but the awareness to recognize when this stuff is or isn't happening. I was going to say, you know, that there's sort of an early process as, as a coach and we have to establish a shared vocabulary too. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Very important. So, (laughs) so so if you're not speaking the same language, if they don't understand exactly what you need, how we can't jump into high level performance and it's not, you know, you're not working with, with the Navy SEALs here, but it's still someone's physical health that you're working with there, you know, so, so we really have to place a high priority on that and make sure that we do our due diligence before we go. And, and we have that shared common language that we're super clear on what, what words mean what our cues mean, what positions they need to get into, because we can't just hope for the best when, when the stakes are higher. Right. So was there more? I was just going to, I was just going to say, well, you, I, I mean, I want to hear what your, your thoughts are. (laughs) What's your show, man. But I did, I did write something down because I think the shared vocabulary 
triggered something in my brain that I've talked about for, I don't know, at least 10 years now. And it's this idea of preconceived notions when you're working and it works for athletes as well. But I feel like especially with the gin pop, they have like preconceived notions as to how they should present, right? Like they have this idea of this is how fit I should be or how flexible I should be or how strong I should be. And so one of the things that I always tried to set early on was that expectation of I don't have expectations, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't care how fit you are or flexible or strong, whatever, you know, stick you're measuring yourself by. Like I don't care. Like all I care about is where are you at now and where do you want to go? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's yeah, all I, I care about. <laughs> I don't I don't like you any less if you can't hit a certain squat number. Right. That's not that's not right. what this is about. 100% and I think if we're just curious, so if we if we come in with with that curiosity mindset, we just say, "Hey, I just like let's look at stuff. Let's explore stuff. There's no agenda. We're just trying to yeah, have a common language, get a sense of where you are. What do you feel really good with? What do you have some question marks about? What do you know like just doesn't feel right?" Right. Okay, now we're starting to 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 have a, a basis to explore, and and it's a very collaborative relationship. Yes, yes, and that's one too where you have to find this blend between you know you and them, right? Like in a lot of coaching relationships, it's what does the coach want to do, right? Mm-hmm. The coach squats and bench presses and deadlifts, and that's the program for everybody, regardless of if it feels good. Versus like you alluded to, a collaborative relationship. Number one, the client has to be kind of open-minded. You as a coach have to have a broader toolkit and be a little bit lighter on your feet because you don't know how everybody's going to move. But I think there's a lot more value in that. And and I know you and I agree on this. Like if you're, if you're in this for the long haul, I think it's a far better long-term approach to have that malleability and coach more based on where somebody can succeed versus trying to jam the proverbial round peg into the square hole. It's just... That really sucks the fun out of things. It does. It and, does. And again, if you're if you're an athlete, okay, maybe maybe we have to be a little bit more rigid about stuff. But what like what are we doing this for? Right. We're doing this to enhance quality of life. So maybe in the moment we're doing this, we shouldn't suck out enjoyment. Maybe we shouldn't suck out quality of life. That doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. Yeah. And and you're absolutely right too. When you talk about motivation, circling back to that point, it's just. A lot of people have this preconceived notion or expectation that exercise is just unflinchingly hard and awful and you should hate going to the gym and you should walk out or crawl out drenched in sweat versus in reality, what exercise looks like, I would think in your space, my space, a lot of the other great spaces out there, it's a lot more toned down and a lot more civil than that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So... In our emails before the show, you said something that really intrigued me. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to have different training ages in the same body? And how do you go about addressing that in their training? Okay. Okay. So <laughs> I know I know it's supposed to be all me, but let me ask you a question. Okay. How do you define training age? I define training age as the amount of time. Okay. There's two ways. The first one would be how long has somebody worked out in a like a serious manner, right? Whatever they define as serious. Then there is, and this is going back to Joe Ken, how long have they trained with me? (laughs) So there's like their general training age and then their training age with me because they're not one in the same. And and I just expect everybody that that starts with me is gonna have to either learn or relearn a new certain movements, techniques, skills, etc. I love that. You know, if you 
you know, a lot of times you'll see in jujitsu, it's like, okay, oh, you were a big deal at this other club. And now you've, you've joined this team or you've joined this club. Start at the beginning, show us everything. And you kind of earn your way back up. Right. And, and I, I think part of that is, is establishing that common language. Part of that to me is, Hey, I just need to do my due diligence and make sure you're really good at all this stuff yeah. before, before we go on. And that's not, that's any professional process. Nobody's going to get mad at you in any other industry for doing that. It's just part of being professional. So I don't, I, I, I don't know why we'd want to skip over that. I would. So I agree with that. I, I really like that, that idea of training age with me. Mm-hmm. Okay? So yeah. we begin again, but I would also, you know, I, I like this, you know, real talk. I, I, I'm not a, I don't love starting strength, but I really liked that. The other book that Ripito and Kilgore wrote, uh, oh, the practical periodization, that book. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's like a, de- there's a definition of training age in there, which is, you know, I think of it as just sort of like a drug tolerance. So if you've never taken this drug before, you have no tolerance. It doesn't take much to create an effect. And then as your training age increases, we need to sort of accumulate more load to to continue progress. You have a a fresh beginner. I mean, we can make improvements in strength and function on on the fly because we're refining their motor product. Like if somebody doesn't know how to create tension, Congratulations, you just got stronger over the last 10 seconds, right? right. But when, once we've kind of built all that stuff out, now we're starting to get into the realm of actually addressing, you know, loading tissues in a consistent way. So that's where we need to sort of accumulate stuff. And so so this idea of, of different training ages in, in the same body, you know, I think I, I originally began to notice this. So when I was just starting out, I had, you know, so I had my general population clients and I was, I was beginning to develop a style and approach and a philosophy for working with those people. And then I would get athletes in and I'd go, oh my God, I've got to get, I've got to do the athlete training templates. And I, w- I would cobble information together from whatever sources I could. And this is, you know, and, and it was a different structure and some of it worked, but a lot of it didn't. And, you know, I remember trying to piece it together. Why isn't this looking the way I want? And when I kind of grew the confidence in, into just saying, it doesn't look good to me. You know, and it's the same thing I would, I would tell any coach that works for us is like, are you happy with that movement? Does that tap, pass the poop test for you? If not, we've got to go back, make it, make it right. right. Make it right by your eyes. So what I began to realize is even though somebody is an athlete, they may have some really developed physical competencies or qualities. There's going to be some other stuff that we need to do remedial work on. And that's cool. That's okay. So we just, we go back to the beginning with, with these things, but a practical example would be, you know, somebody comes in and maybe they're a competitive athlete, maybe they're a recreational athlete, but they've got years and years of distance running and they've never done any strength work. They're going to have a much greater tissue tolerance and and tissue capacity in their lower body. Even if they're not super strong, they're just going to be more resilient, you know, when it, when it comes to lower body loading. And so I think it's kind of an artifact that we, we write these programs and as sort of a, an oversimplified example, let's say I've written, we're going to do five sets of six as your, as your primary strength work for, to the, you know, we've got a squat day and a bench day, et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of an illusion, this idea that all these qualities are going to require exactly the same amount of loading and the same set and rep and rest schemes. And they're all going to 
reach maturity at the same time. They're going to reach staleness at the same time. And we magically, you know, turn over the odometer and start this process with exactly the same pace for every single movement and every single body part when we begin a new program. And, that, you know, that's not that's not how human bodies work. That's not how right. anything in nature works. Right. I just I love that analogy. And when I started thinking about that, it made me think back to when I was powerlifting. And there was a time where I would try and basically follow the same routine for my squat, my bench, my deadlift. And my squat would thrive and my bench would languish. And well, I mean, if you ever saw me, like my thighs, my lower half is very strong. My upper body by powerlifting powerlifting terminology or whatever, that's not the right word, but like by powerlifting perspectives is not super impressive, right? So like, why would I expect that the program that worked for my lower half, which was strong and which was probably where it needed to be, would work for my upper half, you know? And it's it was just interesting hearing you describe it like that or hearing, you know, somebody that's on their feet or, or uses their legs all the time, but never trains their upper body. Like, why would you assume that their workout or their tolerance to load would be the same. And it just, I don't know. I really like that, that analogy and that breakdown that you gave me. It really made a lot of sense. Nice. I'm, I'm the same way. I'm a workhorse, lower body. Yep. And then I, I, I really kind of shortchanged my own progress for years and years because I should have just been trying to accumulate volume with my upper body, but I was trying to do the same stuff Yep. and it did not work very well. Yeah. It's funny how that works, right? Yeah. So I'm excited about this one. I'm just going to open up this can of worms. I'm going to see what happens. Give me the human movement state of the union. (laughs) Okay. Okay. One could certainly argue that we are at an all-time low point. We're, We're seeing, you know, physical education is getting pulled out of schools. We are just way less likely than any previous generation to let our kids just like plunk them down in a forest and let them go, send them out on their bike all day long and let them go. And, you know, not to get too, too far on a tangent, but, you know, I remember reading years ago, this book on, it's called Moonwalking with Einstein. It was about this, this guy, this journalist decides he's going to uh, become a competitive, what, what do you call it? Like a memory athlete. Oh yeah. So, okay. You know, you have to memorize like the order of, of like four decks of playing cards, all these really sort of complex memory challenges. And he talked about how a lot of mnemonic devices, like tools to remember numbers and facts and everything, I believe it was in ancient Greece. It was like, there's no huge written record of this stuff because everybody just had to do it. There was no storage. There was no computer. Nobody, people weren't snapping, you know, pictures of stuff and go, okay, well, yeah, I'll get to this later. So it was so integrated into their day-to-day life that nobody even thought to document the tools of memorization, you know, more recently, you know, if when I started getting really into Indian clubs, one thing that I learned from a guy named Paul Terrace Wolkowinski, who is, uh, you know, I love and, and is uh, this has kind of remastered this almost lost art. He was digging into Victorian era manuals on how to swing Indian clubs. And the problem that he found was there was no remedial work. Everybody, you know, a hundred years ago, this was the state of the union in North America, in England, this is just what everybody did. This was integrated into physical culture. So it was unquestioned that you knew how to do it. And so all these manuals, when we go back and try to decode them, they all assumed a level of competency with clubs 
And now when people are trying to pick them up, they're like, I don't know, like, how do we even get into this? There's no, there's no sort of intro level. And so we can't assume that we're not going to lose this stuff. (laughs) As an aside, do you know where yoga is super not popular, where nobody's practicing it? Where? India. Yeah, really? (laughs) I was going to say that, but I don't want to look like an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. You know, somebody just told me yesterday that he has a friend that brought Western style yoga to India and that and they're flourishing, but nobody's doing traditional stuff there. And and so this stuff is, you know, we're on the cusp of losing a lot of really deep traditional knowledge. So, you know, we, we have to, I think, I think more and more our role is going to be to help kind of restore that basic level of physical competency. But, but right now, Things are looking, you know, I don't, I don't want to be Debbie grim about it or pessimistic, but, but yeah, we're not, I, I mean, it's been better. Right. Physical culture has been better. Right. And again, we, we also have this, this weird Protestant work ethic in North America when it comes to exercise, like it doesn't count, you know, you got to grind. It's got to be awful. I've got to, I've got to be lying on the floor afterwards. I'm like, are you sure that's what human movement's supposed to be? Because yeah. I'm pretty sure this stuff is supposed to be inherently enjoyable. And as part of our, our our physical experience, but so I think we have to be careful yeah. about that and how we're expressing it. I love that, and you know it's frustrating. We both have young kids, and I, I think seeing that firsthand. How old is you have your son? Right? Is it just yeah, the one? just the one? Okay. Yeah, he's three and a half. Okay, so you'll see it more because my daughter is nine and my son is six, and they get PE once a week. You know, and there's days where their PE isn't even PE, like they do something else. And it's just saddening to me because I remember, and again, showing my age here, but we had PE every day, every yeah. day. And it's on top of at least one. And I feel like we generally would have two recesses every day on top of, oh, when we got home from school, we played outside. So, you know, we can all like, beat the drum of we need kids to be outside more and be more active. But I think as parents, just trying to find ways to make it fun, make it engaging. I mean, there's plenty of days I get home from work. The last thing I want to do is, you know, go run around and be active. But man, at the same time, like if you're not going to show them, if you're not going to lead the way, who is? Yeah, we so yeah, we have to model it and doing it when you don't always feel like it is maybe <laughs> maybe part of the deal. Yes. One, one thing I've been thinking about a lot, uh, a lot lately is you know, if I were to say, hey, you know, your physical health relates to your mental health or, or you know, doing exercise is good for your brain. That's pretty that's not very controversial. Right. But I think we assume there's some kind of alchemy that goes on. I did a physical thing and then it translated into a brain thing where to me, you know, we <laughs> transfer is the magic world yep. in our industry. Right. So. You know, we can talk about transfer in terms of maybe general physical preparation. Hey, you know, if you've never squatted before, you start squatting, I'll bet it elevates a lot of other physical competencies. Yep. But the most universal stuff, the most universally transferable stuff are the mental skills we learned. Hey, you're uncomfortable. Okay. Continue to go, like explore right. your limits, flirt with your boundaries. And so if we sort of agree that this is part of the mental health landscape, which I very much believe it is. And I'm not saying that math isn't important. I'm not saying that biology isn't important, but probably your mental health is, is our top tier. So now I I don't know, 
if we if we can expect or demand that 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 schools with limited budgets and all kinds of influences can do this work, but we I do know that we're responsible to make sure that it gets done. I mean, I'm bummed out at what education looks like yep. in 2020, but that you know my my complaining isn't going to solve anything. So we have to look at how do we make we'll call it remedial physical education as accessible as possible. Yeah. I love that, man. So last but certainly not least, we've both been doing this coaching and entrepreneurship thing for a while now, so I'm really interested in your thoughts. How has the fitness industry evolved over the past decade? Yeah. You know, I remember when I was getting into things, just finding quality information was so hard. Yep. You really had to, I mean, you, you had to dig through research and a lot of times you had to go to an actual library, library if you wanted yeah. to see that research <laughs> yes. as, as well as that is. And, you know, I remember in the early days, one of the ways that we showed value or, or as a business was, hey, here's an exercise. It's novel. You've never seen it before. And people are like, wow, this is so crazy. I didn't know you could do that. That's not the case anymore. Right. There, you can go on a YouTube or Instagram and probably spend the rest of your life just watching exercise videos. So, you know, and a lot of it's novelty based and, and it, it is what, you know, and, and that's what, what people are interested in. Okay. The problem isn't finding information anymore. And it's really not even finding quality information because there are a lot of really smart people putting out great content all the time. So more now, I think we have to ask the question, of well, what role do we have, especially as a, as a brick and mortar business, okay, which which we both have. So how do we how do we bring value in 2020? And, and to me, I think that's a couple things. A big piece of it is showing people nuance because you can watch an exercise video, but those little details, those little adjustments, those the the ways, the tools we have to just help people feel what they're supposed to feel or tune into an aspect of, of their experience or go off script and go, Hey, I know, I know this was the plan, but let's try this today. Right. Can I, can we, you know, one of, uh, one of our favorite phrases, and I think for our members, one of their favorite phrases is, Hey, can we try something? Yes. And we get it, we get to explore and we really got it. We get to deepen our relationship. We could deepen their, their sort of their relationship with their own body. So that, that's a big part. And I think, you know, coming back to this mental health aspect, I think that's the other great way that we can bring value because we see people more than their doctors. We see people more than their physiotherapists. We see people, if you're, if you're getting therapy or you're seeing a, a psychiatrist, we, we're still seeing you more frequently so that that frequency has a lot of power if we leverage it right. And I think we, we have the potential to have an enormously positive impact on someone's mental health as well, as well as their physical health. So that's where I see our industry now and how that's evolved. Yeah, I love the point about nuance, too, because you talk about exercise videos, and I mean, I create a fair amount of those myself, mm -hmm. and, and I think the biggest or the best compliment that I get from those is, wow, I never tried it like that, or wow, I never thought of it like that, which, mm -hmm. you know, if you see the exercises I'm showing, it's not forward lunge to curl on BOSU ball with eyes blindfolded, you know, it's not... I'm not winning the novelty awards here. It's exercise that most people have probably seen or are familiar with, but it's giving them a different cue or a different sensation to look for. And I think that's where, as you alluded to, that's where the real value is. That's what real coaching is. 
Absolutely. People, you know, we know, we know this sort of argument, like people say, oh, I, I just love novelty. I love to change it up. And when somebody says that to me, I just think, well, yeah, we're completely missing nuance. This is, if you haven't figured out, this is, I, I've noticed one of my favorite words, my vocabulary <laughs> heat map, nu- nuance comes up an awful lot. It's, yes. it's, it is a hot spot. But, you know, I, I think that when, when someone says that they've just, they have an experience. Like to me, if we do 10 reps of squats, every rep is a little different. And if we, if we know what to look for and, and, and how to find that, we don't have to entertain anyone with novelty because they're experiencing it all the time. And, and by the way, you know what's even better than being, you know, entertained than having novelty is getting really good at shit. And that's the path forward. Yeah. A lot of times when I hear somebody say, I just like to change it up. It's almost like code word for I like to do a lot of different things and not see progress. Yeah. I have no idea what progress even looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I've tried a lot of things. None of it's worked. So I just continually and perpetually change things. Yeah. So, okay, my guy, big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Jeff Gervitz one piece of advice about training in our life, what would it be? Okay. You know, I listen to your podcast. Yes. And every time you ask someone this question, I ask myself the same, the same thing. (laughs) And here's what I've noticed. My answer is different every time. Really? And I think, yeah. And I think that just speaks to that kind of that recency bias where you're like, whatever's on my mind. Sure. Yeah. Oh, this is what, this is what I have to tell young Jeff. But so knowing that, you know, I think I would say, so this is what's on my mind lately, but it's, it's like, I would say every action you take, every small action is sort of a vote for what your values are. And so, you know, coming back to this, this idea about exercise being inherently enjoyable or, or having that potential, it's like, have you, have you looked for enjoyment in your exercise? Because when you do that, you vote for that direction. And if you never make a vote in that direction, somebody else is going to take power, right? right? But the, the, that power of small actions, these kind of small intentions is, is really incredible. So it doesn't always translate in the moment to a thing, but it, it shapes your direction. So I'd say like, really, really think about what you're trying to create in your life and your work and whatever, and, and make, you know, a thousand of those tiny votes every day. That's, that's my advice. That's my advice for young Jeff. Yes. I like that. And well, it comes back to your, your idea of the process, right? Just committing to the process. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something that the older that you get, the more you realize how important it is. Yeah. The big like outcome based goals, they can help you. They can maybe drive you a little bit, but the process-based stuff is where the real reward lies if you can commit to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Last but not least, lightning round. Four questions, fairly short in nature, but your answer can be as short or as long as you'd like. Ready? Hit me. All right. Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? I'm so bad at these questions. Um <laughs> Okay. So like a milestone was, was opening up a facility, you know, there have been, there definitely been a, a, a ton of times where it's come back to me, even from people who have, who have left here where, where they've come back to communicate the impact we had or how that it's kind of shaped their experience of exercise and, and their, the way they, they move through life, you know, in a literal sense. And that's, that's really meant a lot. I think, you know, I remember, you know, I was saying, oh, when I was looking at, at these templates for, for athletic training, I remember those moments of kind of discovering that I can shape my own path out. I don't have to 
I don't have to follow anybody. I can, I can do what is, what is meaningful to me. Yeah. I think, you know, highlight for me was, was sort of early in my career. I had an opportunity to collaborate with, with precision nutrition and, and get to know folks there who have continued to be great friends to me. Chris Scott Dixon, John Berardi, Phil Caravaggio, Don Matteo, all these guys, they're really wonderful people. I really, you know, I really like them and have, and yep. have, and have grown from, from knowing these people. So that's been a big deal. Seeing our coaches go out and like and open up facilities or or, or kind of you know take the baton and, and really be impactful in other people's lives that's a pretty big deal. Proud dad um, moment, right? Yeah, seriously. And I think more recently, I, I feel like I've gotten over this hump of being so so focused on a business. Like as you know, it's it's your. This is your livelihood. Nobody's nobody's paying you a salary. You have tremendous freedom, right? Right, to make decisions. But that also means you can make some terrible decisions, <laughs> um, and that there's there's sort of a stress that, that comes with that. So, you know, at some point in the you know fairly recently, I just said, you know, we're in a we're in a good place. Maybe maybe I can chill out. Maybe I don't have to grind all the time, and I can get back. You know, when we talk about votes, voting for enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where that comes through. So I'm I'm wanting to to more and more kind of find places to, to let my creativity out and, and to explore a lot, a lot of aspects, you know, you put stuff on hold sometimes, yes. like, you know, and it's such a, it's such a human thing. And I, I really fall and pray to this, like, okay, when I get to X point, that's uh-huh. when I can relax. Right. Right. And that's when I can do this other stuff, which is such bullshit. And, and all it means is we're, we're ignoring opportunities to develop these things in smaller ways and more and more humble ways. So that's, that, that's been a big, sort of inflection point. I love it. Okay. Number two, you've run an incredibly successful business in a very competitive market. What advice, like maybe one or two pieces of advice, would you give to someone who's looking or thinking about opening a gym someday? Mm -hmm. Your competitive advantage is giving a shit. Giving a shit can't be scaled. It can't be automated because you can't compete with a big company on marketing spend. You can't afford to put uh, marble in your change rooms, probably. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, you can't, you know, you don't have the budget for this stuff. And in a, in a big box gym, you know, or, or you know, I, I imagine like an Equinox, which is really kind of like, I, I think like a, a gold standard for, for big box, but still a big right. box gym, you know, people can develop relationships with personal trainers, but they don't, they're not going to want to wrap their arms around the organization. You have the power for every contact point, every step of your process to, to really make it personal and meaningful and thoughtful. You have the power to break the rules when it comes to systems and that, that is your competitive advantage. Um, and that's, that's what's going to ultimately make you special. I love that. That's such good advice. And like you said, nobody, like people don't go to Lifetime and just think, man, this is the best gym ever. I mean, maybe they do, right? But they don't, it's not like going into your gym where it is you and your team and your staff and your culture. That's where they can really create that personal connection and interaction. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to add one more piece of advice. Yeah. Um, if I can. And, and that Please. is, are you sure you want to open a facility? <laughs> like, it's the whole it's the whole e myth thing. Yeah. Are you an entrepreneur? Are you a dyed in the wall entrepreneur, or are you a technician having an entrepreneurial moment? Because you may best serve people, and you may best serve yourself by just really focusing on your craft. Because if you decide 
you want to open a facility, get ready. You know that thing you're known for that you're really special at, your unique ability, why people started kind of telling you, hey, you got to do more of this. You know that thing? You're going to do way less of that. Yep. So are you, you know, for a very long time, maybe forever. So are you ready for that? Is that going to be the best avenue for you? It's just, you know, it is what it is. Just, just kind of know what you're walking into. That's huge advice. I forget who I, I talked about this with somebody a couple of weeks ago on the show, or maybe it wasn't on the show. Maybe it was a phone call now that I'm thinking about this, but, and, and hopefully we don't get too just totally tangential with this, but we've been doing this long enough where in the mid two thousands, it was just kind of a thing. If you were a good or wanted to be a great coach, you opened a gym. That's how Mm -hmm. you like really earned your stripes up. I'm not just some other dude. I'm a legit coach because I opened my own space. Mm -hmm. Now, 10, 15 years later, enough good coaches that open businesses are out of business. Does that make them worse coaches? No, they just didn't. They didn't. They weren't successful in the business side of things. And so now I think we're almost seeing this shift back where people that are great coaches are selling their businesses and they're going back to coaching because that was the thing they were really excited about, you know? Find a great relationship, find a place that will give you the freedom to just work in a way that is congruent with your values and will allow you to be to be great, give you that space, right? Yep. If you can find that, that's all you're trying to build for yourself anyway. Yep. Um, and maybe some of the things that make you a great coach are completely counter to what make you a great business owner. It's it is a tough it is a tough balance. Like I've I, I really had to work so hard to just bring up. I, I opened this place. I had no idea about how to run a business. Right. You know, you learn. It's not that it can't be done, but it just might be pulling you out of the, you know, the, the things that are, are going to have the greatest impact and bring you the greatest professional enjoyment as well. I love it. Awesome. Number three. Uh, and I'm, I'm really intrigued to hear your answer on this because I know we're both passionate about this topic. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how being a coach has helped shape the kind of dad you are. I'll say this. I first noticed that I was doing something right. And I don't even, I don't even remember the, the specific situation, but you know, my, my son, again, he's, he's three. He, he said, that's great work, dad. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, Oh my God. So that, that didn't come out of nowhere. He's heard a lot of positive feedback. I was right. like, okay. That's, that's really good. You know, and it's charming to hear that, but I know that that's also part of his environment. Yeah. And I'll be the first person to say like saying good job is actually not enough. And especially, you know, and, and this is one of the things like I really work with our coaches on, you have to be explicit in your yeah. praise because good job doesn't mean anything. But when I tell you, this is why it's great. And, and even for somebody who struggles to kind of give themselves or take credit, give themselves praise, we want to build like an expert court case. Like we're going to present to, <laughs> to a grand jury. Right. So, we want to let people know what's good about stuff. And, and so I elaborate on, on that stuff for him too. But, uh, you know, I was saying a more recent moment, you know, he's got a lot of swagger. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's full. He, the confidence is not his issue. So he'll right. come up to you and go, I'm strong. I'm fast. Right. And so, uh, you know, with respect to this idea of moving into a growth mindset, what I've tried to do is, you know, when he, when he says good job on something, I'll say, you know, Oh yeah, I really, I was really working on that. Or he, he'll ask me that. How did you figure that out? How did you do that? And I said, I'll just, I just kept working on it and trying till I figured it out. And when he does that, like 
I remember a couple of weeks ago, he was struggling to <laughs> get his his bike from from the street over the curb onto the sidewalk, which is you know a lot of a lot of work when you're three. And yeah, he, he's going. You know, he's like he's going. He's got positive self talk while he's doing it. He's like, I'm strong, and he's like, he's growling <laughs> when he does it, which which I love. But I'll, I'll say to him, Hey, I you know when he got it up, I said, you know, I saw that you kept working. That was really hard, and I saw that you kept working until you got your bike yeah. up. And so, you know, one, one thing I, I struggle to give myself credit to sometimes, but one thing I've noticed is I am good. I'm, I mean, this is the role of a coach, right? Our job is to manipulate challenges. We want to find the hardest thing that somebody can do well. Yeah. And so I will manipulate challenges in his life. Cause I, I'm in a position now to kind of pop up master some stuff and to the point where he has to work. And I kind of have a sense of how long he's going to try for before he gives up. And I try to, I flirt with it, but I give him wins. I make sure he is consistently executing wins because it's not Navy SEAL style where it's like, this is why you failed. And this right. is, you know, I, I just, that's, it's never occurred to him, I don't think, to give up because we just, I just kind of give him just enough where he works. And I've noticed this builds over time. Now he's willing to stay on stuff longer. And this really, it makes me pretty proud. And I, I don't know, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know how it's going to go or what challenges we're going to have in the future, but so far that that I see a lot of positive indicators. So we're just going to keep rolling with that. I love it, man. Okay, my guy. Last but not least, number four. What's next for Jeff Gervitz? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything? Okay. So some cool stuff. We've we're almost through a rebrand at Bang, and, and this has been a really interesting experience. People ask me about, you know, why would you do a rebrand or why would you do it? And I, th- I think it's just anything that forces you to really kind of challenge yourself about the clarity you have about what you want to do, who you work with, how you best serve them. That's all been really great. And if, and we get to have fun and do weirder stuff and more creative stuff. So I, I really enjoyed that. The other thing is, you know, my newest project is called Dad Strength. Yeah. I've got it. And, and, and this is just about, you know, okay, well, I'll say this, I've got enough work in my life. So I'm not just trying to have an, a side hustle. I'm not trying to create work for work's sake. So my one real rule for dad strength is it's got to be out of love and it's got to be out of pure enjoyment. I've got to really have a great time working on, on whatever I'm doing. So we've got sure. some projects in the works. Eventually you'll hear a podcast and we'll do some other yeah. stuff. Yeah, um, which, which I'm excited about for now. I've got a Facebook group and, you know, I do a little bit of what I call lifestyle consulting with people. But again, it is all purely for enjoyment. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Jeff, you've been amazing to chat with today, my guy. Where can my listeners find out more about you and everything you have going on? For training, check out bangpersonaltraining.com. Dad Strength is, you're going to be shocked when you hear this, it's dadstrength.com. We've got a, we've got a group on Facebook, so just look for Dad Strength. And if you want to talk about any of this stuff, hit me, Jeff, G-E-O-F-F at bangpersonaltraining.com. I love it, man. Well, Jeff, thanks again for coming on the show, buddy. It was great chatting. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Jeff. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. He's somebody that I've known for years now, and I just have so much respect for him as a coach as an entrepreneur, and just as a being a great human being as a whole. So if you took anything away from this show, I would greatly appreciate it if you could share it in any way, shape, or form that works for you. 
could be social media, could be email, could just be telling a friend, a family member, a fellow trainer, coach, or athlete about what Jeff has to say and how it made a positive impact on you. So my friend, that does it for this week's episode. As always, love and appreciate you, and we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.